Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best Falaf Podcast, in which we shall learn about the classic battle between good and, I don't know, malicious indifference to suffering in the pursuit of ideology over real-world outcomes. It's it's more accurate than good versus evil, uh, as seen through the lens of trying to destroy or save the U.S. Post Office on one hand, and the struggle to define the revolutionary change we are almost certainly going to experience on the back end of the pandemic for either good or ill. This is another of my double episodes that I've started making almost by accident. Two topics, though intimately connected with one another, uh, at twice the length. It's two for the price of two, basically. Uh, as I said, we're going to start by looking at the systematic attack on the post office, and then smoothly transition into the attacks on working people everywhere, and wrap up with a big-picture look at the battle for the future taking place right now in the chaos of the pandemic, because this is exactly the kind of thing that creates inflection points in history, and we need to be aware of that and ready for that, and uh, there to make our voices heard so that the future can reflect our values. And I've got to say, a lot of the best stuff is toward the end of today's episode, so you're really not going to want to skip out on that. Why did I put the good stuff at the end where fewer people may hear it? I I have my reasons, so trust me. Clips today come from Last Week Tonight, Jim Hightower, Democracy Now!, The David Pakman Show, The Real News, Counterspin, Belabored, Unauthorized Disclosure, The Topical from The Onion, The Intercept, Social Distance, and a Progressive Faith Sermon from Dr. Roger Ray. The Postal Service has a rich and storied history. It actually predates the founding of this country, and it has an obligation to bring mail to every single household, even transporting it to the bottom of the Grand Canyon by mule. Over the years, Americans have relied on it for a surprisingly wide variety of needs. Country children often watch for the mailman. Just see what has come today. A big box with many holes in it. The box is full of baby chicks. Baby chicks don't have to eat or drink for a whole day after they're hatched, so they can travel safely through the mail. It's true. You used to be able to send live baby chicks through the mail, and guess what? You still can. The Postal Service will transport all kinds of live poultry for you, including chickens, ducks, geese, and turkeys. Which actually raises the question, why the fuck would I ever send a greeting card again when I could mail someone a birthday turkey, or a thank you duck, or a sympathy goose? Who wouldn't want a sympathy goose? I mean, sure, your nana's dead, but now you have a small goose, which is, and this is true, better. But the current pandemic is obviously making things very difficult for postal workers right now, as you probably know from seeing stories like these. I am very worried, very worried. We're, I mean, to the point that I worry about coming to work every day. I don't want to contract it to bring it back to my family. Do you feel like you're at risk every time you go to work? Yes. Can't say that it's not in the back of everybody's mind. There is a joke amongst the office, are we essential or sacrificial? Holy shit, that is a dark joke. Most office humour is just on the level of working hard or hardly working, or someone's microwaving fish again, not will any of us die today, LMFAO. And those fears are not misplaced. Over a thousand postal workers have tested positive for COVID-19, and more than 40 have died. But both in addition to and because of the ongoing pandemic, these workers are also having to grapple with another existential threat. The Postal Service may be about to go broke. 
The outgoing Postmaster General recently asked Congress for a total of $89 billion. And without financial help, the USPS may not make it past September without significant service interruptions, which is upsetting, especially during an election year, a census year and a pandemic that has people housebound. And I know people do love to complain about the post office, but the truth is it does very important work and many people really rely on it, not just to receive packages, but in rural areas in particular, a post office can be a community hub that brings people together. Just listen to this postmaster in rural Colorado tell a heartwarming story with a bit of a twist. Postmaster Berger says neighbors who live far apart run into each other at the post office. That's how everybody keeps in touch, including him. It's provided me the opportunity to to know these people in this town more than I ever thought I would know. Um, even to the degree where sometimes on my lunch hour, I find myself helping a neighbor bury his dog. Okay, first, what? Second, excuse me? And third, just to circle back, the fuck? Also, you just said sometimes you help bury a dog. That's plural, meaning you've done it more than once. And helping someone do that once is a courtesy. But when it starts becoming a regular thing, you have to wonder why the neighbourhood dogs keep dying and why you're always there. The point is, at the worst possible time, this American institution is on the brink of collapse. So tonight, we thought it might be worth asking why that is and what can be done about it. And let's start with the fact that despite being part of the federal government, The Postal Service is actually a self-funded entity. It operates independently and is meant to pay for itself with the money that it makes from services and postage. That might help explain why over the years it's often tried to encourage stamp collecting with commercials like this. Hey, want to get stuck on or stamp? They're stuck on stamp. It's fun to do either by yourself or with your crew. Now prehistoric animals are on the scene. First, that song can get it. And also, kudos on featuring all the stamps that kids love, from those slamming dino stamps to the dank get well stamp with irises to my personal favourite, the one that simply says, lace making. And I think I speak for cool kids everywhere and I say, there's simply nothing doper than a totally bitchin' lace stamp. I'm just worried it might be too cool. And you might think that you know why the Postal Service is in so much trouble, that the internet and email mean that people just don't use it as much. But that's not actually the main reason. In fact, experts believe it would still be turning a profit were it not for a 2006 law called the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. Now, one of the things that it required was for the USPS to prepay healthcare benefits for retirees on a 50-year schedule, starting with an aggressive obligation to set aside over $5 billion a year for 10 years. That in itself was a massive burden to put on the Postal Service. But the law also limited its flexibility to raise money by putting price caps on major products like first class mail. So they had massive new obligations to meet, even as their income was basically locked in place. Now, in hindsight, it seems like a pretty clear death sentence, which is what makes it so strange that it passed largely unnoticed at the time and with bipartisan support. And the effect was almost immediate because the Postal Service went from reporting a net income of $900 million in 2006 to a loss of $3.8 billion just three years later. And good luck selling enough dope-ass lace stamps to get yourself out of that hole. So the truth is, the Postal Service's problems aren't entirely from the fact that we started using email or even the 2008 recession. In fact, it's been estimated 
that the stipulations of this one law have accounted for approximately 74% of their net losses since it passed. And that is despite them shedding over 100,000 jobs. And the fact they were so badly hobbled by an act of Congress makes it a little infuriating that some, like former Fox News commentator John Stossel, hold it up as a sign that government agencies are just naturally bloated and incompetent. Another myth. Government can run the post office like a business. But real businesses can't lose billions every year. 16 billion last year. FedEx, UPS and others make billions because they innovate and cut costs. Okay, there's a lot wrong with that, but he is right that FedEx is pretty good at innovating. For example, you've probably seen the arrow hidden in the FedEx logo. But did you know that for years there also used to be a swastika hidden in the D? Yeah, once you see it, like the arrow, you can't unsee it. But they took it out because businesses have to innovate. Now, what Stossel is advocating for there and what many conservatives would prefer is for the Postal Service to be privatised. But there are some huge drawbacks to that idea. For starters, as you may have noticed, FedEx and UPS charge a fuck of a lot more to deliver than the Postal Service does. Also, those remote addresses that they are obligated to deliver to aren't just difficult to get to. They're not profitable. And in all likelihood, companies would cut those routes off, meaning a lot of people would lose access. And to his credit... John Stussell fully acknowledges that, although basically says in response, tough shit. The Constitution says Congress has the power to establish post offices. It doesn't have to, and it doesn't have to deliver mail to all of America. Who says there needs to be universal service? If I live way out in the boondocks, I can get email. Now, it's hard to decide what I like least about that, his dismissive attitude towards rural Americans, the incorrect assumption that email is a decent substitute for the postal service, conveniently glossing over the fact that an estimated 42 million people lack access to broadband internet, or the unfortunate fact that John Stossel looks like what would happen if someone tried to queer-eye Geraldo Rivera, but it didn't really work. And again, The Postal Service is a literal lifeline for many Americans. It reportedly delivered 1.2 billion prescriptions last year, including close to 100% of prescriptions from the VA. And while you might be able to buy medicine online, you can't actually download medicine from the internet. To clarify, you can download the medicine, Jeremy Renner's collection of music-like noises from the internet, but, and this is very important, you shouldn't do that. And then there's the potential business impacts of privatisation. Small businesses would immediately be affected if service was reduced, like this rock engraving company in rural Kansas. Fisher Rock is another company that uses the local post office to ship some of their smaller products. Just about every day we mail out something. I hate to see them lose our post office in, in Home City. It's handy for businesses like myself just to run in there and get postage and, and, and mail out rocks. Yeah. It would be a real shame if that business couldn't mail out its rocks, like this one that says real women heart little wieners, or this one that says the grass is greener under my wiener. I mean, that's a perfect rock right there. If the Postal Service stopped delivering gut busters like that, it would be a fucking tragedy. Although not for me, to be honest, since I already bought mine and I've got to say it's definitely funnier in person. One of the funniest things about it is how genuinely heavy this is. And look, It's not just small businesses. Companies like FedEx and UPS often hand off their packages to the Postal Service for the last leg of the delivery, especially in rural areas. Amazon also contracts many of its deliveries out to it. And that, weirdly enough, 
brings us to one of the biggest things standing in the way of the USPS getting the federal assistance it so badly needs right now, because this guy has strongly opposed giving it sufficient aid, and many believe that that's because of its relationship with Amazon, owned, of course, by Jeff Bezos, who also owns The Washington Post, whose political coverage is hated by the president, who, as we know, makes policy decisions based on his never-ending game of six degrees of how is this about me. Just watch him try and explain why the Postal Service should not get federal help. The Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages for Amazon and other internet companies, and every time they bring a package, they lose money on it. The Post Office should raise the price of a package by approximately four times because they don't raise them. For some reason, these people have been in there a long time, but for some reason, they're very cozy with some of these companies and they don't raise the price of a package. Okay, first, the Postal Service is not a joke. It delivers jokes, yes, and they are, as we know, absolutely hilarious, but it's not in itself a joke. Greener under my wiener. This is the funniest rock of all time. Jesus Christ. But second, if the Postal Service quadruples prices on companies, those package delivery costs will almost certainly be passed on to the consumer because they're companies and they don't give a shit. And third, it isn't cutting sweetheart deals to lose money on every delivery because, in addition to everything else we've already discussed, that 2006 law made it illegal for the USPS to price parcel delivery below its cost. So in summation here, Trump is absolutely convinced that the Postal Service's biggest problem is one of the few things that is not actually one of its problems. And that's not just annoying, it's really worrying. Especially as just this week, he replaced the outgoing Postmaster General with this guy, Louis DeJoy, a major Trump donor. And that appointment has worried, worried many, many people that Trump may now be able to bend the Postal Service to his will, presumably meaning that by next year, every stamp in America will feature one of Jeff Bezos's dick pics. One public service that people really like and count on is the post office, which literally delivers for us. Anti-government ideologues and privatization dogmatists, however, hate the very word public, and they've long sought to demonize the U.S. Postal Service, undercut its popular support, and finally dismantle it. Their main line of attack has been to depict it as a bloated, inefficient, outmoded agency that's a hopeless money loser, sucking billions from taxpayers. Never mind that USPS doesn't take a dime of tax money to fund its operations. It's actually a congressionally chartered, for-profit corporation that earns its revenue by selling stamps and services to customers. And here's something that will come as a surprise to most people. The post office makes a profit, expected to be more than a billion dollars this year. Yet, the media keep reporting that the USPS is losing billions of dollars each year. What they fail to mention, however, is that those are phony paper losses manufactured by Congress at the behest of corporate privatizers. Late in 2006, the lame-duck Republican Congress rammed into law a cockamamie requirement that the Postal Service must pre-fund the retiree health benefits of everyone it employs or expects to employ for the next 75 years. Hello, that includes workers who are not even born yet. 
No other business in America is required to pre-fund such benefits for even one year. To add to Congress's cockamaminess, the service is being forced to put up all of that money within just 10 years, which has been costing USPS more than $5 billion a year. That artificial burden accounts for 100% of the so-called losses the media keep reporting. This is Jim Hightower saying, It's like tying an anvil around someone's neck, throwing the person out of a boat, and then saying, Swim to shore, sucker! We look at the devastating impact the coronavirus has had on the U.S. Postal Service, which may be on the brink of collapse. This at a time when more people than ever are relying on the mail. The nation's mail service faces steep losses and revenue warns it may not survive through summer without major federal assistance. But President Trump and his administration have repeatedly rejected attempts to bail out the Postal Service, blocking its inclusion in the $2.3 trillion stimulus bill. Trump lashed out at USPS on Friday. The Postal Service is a joke because they're handing out packages for Amazon and other internet companies, and every time they bring a package, they lose money on it. The post office, if they raise the price of a package by approximately four times, it'd be a whole new ball game. But they don't want to raise because they don't want to insult Amazon, and they don't want to insult other companies, perhaps, that they like. The post office should raise the price of the packages to the companies, not to the people, to the companies. And if they did that, it would be a whole different story. The Washington Post called Trump's claim that the USPS loses money on every package it delivers for e-commerce merchants baseless. Later that day, Trump tweeted, quote, I will never let our post office fail. It's been mismanaged for years, especially since the advent of the Internet and modern-day technology. The people that work there are great and we're going to keep them happy, healthy, and well, Trump tweeted. At least 30 Postal Service workers have died from COVID-19. The U.S. Post Office has reported more than 1,200 confirmed cases of the virus. Workers report a lack of protective gear. Earlier this month, Senator Bernie Sanders discussed the crisis confronting the Postal Service with American Postal Workers Union President Mark Dimenstein. I understand that the Postmaster General has said that the Postal Service will be running out of money uh, in a few months. Uh, the Postal Service has been dealing with long-term financial problems. What would happen to this country if the Postal Service went out of business? If the Post Office were allowed to die, and with this COVID pandemic and its economic impact on the Postal Service, if Congress doesn't step up and the people ensure that Congress steps up, the post office could die. It, it runs on no taxpayer dollars. It runs on revenue. I'll say that again, because I think most people don't know that. The post most office. people think that it's a government agency. Explain where the revenue comes from that sustains the Postal Service. It's a quasi-independent government agency that only runs on revenue from postage and postal services. No taxpayer dollars. And that revenue has to be able to maintain the delivery to 160 million addresses, the retail units all over the country, often the anchor of communities, whether it's rural or urban. 
This comes as the attack on the U.S. Postal Service also poses a massive threat to the upcoming November presidential election. Well, for more, we are joined by the American Postal Workers Union President, Mark Dimenstein. Welcome to Democracy Now! Well, Mark Dimenstein, I wanted to ask you, this whole—we constantly hear these uh, reports that the Postal Service is in, in huge—is uh, running huge deficits every year. But could you talk about how the a previous reform— that required the Postal Service to prepay all of these retirement benefits for years, what the impact that that has had, uh, the decision by Congress to impose that restriction on the, on the Postal Service, what that has, uh, the impact that has had on the bottom line? Well, it definitely had an impact on the bottom line, and, and I can share that briefly, but I do want to differentiate some of the historical problems and the ongoing problems with the COVID pandemic economic crisis and how that's affecting the post office. But uh, but as a little background, in 2006, Congress passed a law called the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act, and they did something to the public postal service that no other government agency and no other private company has ever had to do. And it's just too onerous. Uh, they forced the post office to pay uh, 75 years into the future, uh, and within a 10-year period, 75 years uh, into the future, retiree health benefits. So that's for workers that not only did not work at the post office yet, but weren't even born yet. And that's where so much of the news stories each year about the Postal Service being in debt came from. It was a manufactured on paper crisis. The reality is, if you took out that prefunding mandate, uh, the post office actually did quite well. Uh, the post office is not set up as a business, it's not set up to pack billions of dollars in the bank and enrich shareholders or CEOs. It's set up to serve the people of the country. And it was doing that uh, 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 well, even with the challenges. But if I can fast forward to now, I think it's important to separate out some of the ongoing problems, some of the changing mail habits, some of the opportunities that the post office has to bring in new revenue like, like postal banking and so on. But talk about what's really happening right now, because whatever happened in 2006, even if it didn't happen, the COVID pandemic is having a huge, devastating, dire impact on postal revenue. As as the lead in talked about, there's no taxpayer dollars that goes into the post office. It runs strictly on the revenue of postal and postal products. And that revenue has to be able to be enough to carry out the mission of what we call the universal service mandate. Every address, every person, no matter who we are and where we live, a great small d democratic right. Getting mail, packages, six days a week now, sometimes seven. And what's happened in this pandemic, uh, and it's, it's economic devastation throughout the entire country and world. Uh, but what's happened specifically to the Postal Service is the, the mail has precipitously dropped off. Just think about it. What, what restaurant is sending coupons through the mail? What small business is saying, come to my business, uh, we have a sale going on, while the business is closed? Even grandpa like me can't go out and buy the birthday card for the grandkids and put it in the mail because the store is closed or we're uh, 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 sheltered at home. So it's had a huge impact. And what's happening is a lot of the mail uh, uh, the marketing mail, for example, has dropped off almost 50 percent, and that's going to continue to happen. Packages are up some, 
But how long is that going to last when 25 million people and more to come are unemployed? So what's happening is it's there's a fork in the road. The Postal Service will actually run out of money, whether it's this summer, whether it's early fall. The revenue just isn't there strictly based on COVID. So what we've asked, and it's not just the we of the postal unions, uh, the, the Postal Board of Governors, which sets policy, which is a majority Republican board right now, has unanimously asked for robust relief, not a bailout. This is for the people of the country. This doesn't go into any shareholders, any CEOs. Uh, but to make up that lost revenue so the post office can weather this crisis and still at the same time serve the people of the country, both in ordinary times and and in this time of uh, crisis. So it's it's serious. It's real. Uh, and uh, and again, it's very uh, focused on the covid pandemic economic impact. And in addition to the uh, potential or the possibility of uh, additional help as a result of COVID from Congress, what about these? Could you talk a little bit more about these proposals of reformed ways for new uh, possible reforms for new revenues for the post office, uh, specifically this whole issue of uh, banking or what other people call Federal Reserve accounts uh, that would be used through individual post offices? Look, the, the post office is a wonderful national treasure in every community from the most remote rural portions of the country to the uh, most densely populated urban centers and neighborhoods. And as such, and again, its mission is to bind the people together. So there's, there's so much more that the post office can do. Uh, it already does a certain amount of financial services. It could do a lot more. It, 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 it even basic paycheck cashing, uh, ATMs and postal service, money transfers. All of that would be a counter to this predatory payday lending, check cashing industry. There's tens of millions of people that are either unbanked or underbanked, meaning that they have no bank account at all or they end up in this what they call this alternative. Uh, we call it the loan sharking um, uh, predatory uh industry. So there are there are opportunities there to serve the people. It would bring in revenue. Uh, postal workers are eager, eager to perform those kind of things. There's, uh, there could be all sorts of license, uh, uh, licensing. Uh, there could be, uh, you know, uh, Internet access. There could be cop, uh, the uh, copying services. There's all sorts of things that the post office uh, can do and should do. But in order to get there, uh, we have to make sure that we have a public postal service. And that now is really up for grabs because clearly we have an administration that would like to, uh, and, and it's clear, they have an agenda. They would like to sell the, the public postal service off to private corporations, privatize it, and turn what's the service of the people into, and everybody has the same equal access to, uh, turn it into a profit-making entity where whether people get mail service or not, uh, and at what cost, and at what kind of surcharges would depend on whether somebody can make a quick dollar. And again, the post office is set up on a nonprofit basis to serve every single person. So this administration has an agenda, and they're shamefully using this crisis to carry it out rather than set policy. I mean, here you had a, 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 a incentive package of $2.2 trillion dollars. 
The corporation's got $500 billion. The Postal Board of Governors asked for $25 billion of that uh, Mark, $500 billion. I, Mark, I wanted to Didn't ask get. you also, we just have a little bit of time left, but I wanted to ask you about this, uh, this allegation of President Trump that Amazon is getting sweetheart deals from the Postal, uh, postal Service and also— uh, the possibilities he's raising about giving access to Americans' mailboxes for the private carrier industry? Well, look, every uh, every agency with authority, the Postal Regulatory Commission and others, has debunked that myth that the Postal Service is losing money on Amazon and other packages. It, it, it just isn't true. Uh, and for a uh, president of the United States to tell the people of this country and the postal workers who are on the front lines that the postal workers, that the post office is a joke, uh, something that belongs to everybody in this country. It belongs to the people. That is the uh, absolute insult of insults. And it's not a laughing matter to the people of the country, the veterans that rely on their medicines to come from V.A., uh, the Postal Service in normal times delivers 1.2 billion uh, packages of medicine and and uh, so on. So it's uh, and I'm sorry, you're, I, I, I forgot your second part of that question. If you could say it again. Uh, and also the, the possibility of bringing in private carriers to deliver on in regular post office boxes. Well, look, the the, the your our mailbox is it is an extension of our living room. It's part of our home. It's private. Nobody can walk through our front door. Nobody now has access to that mailbox. It's the last really it's 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 the last holdout of true private communications. The Internet's not uh, 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 Facebook is not tweeting is not and so on. So that's what's called the sanctity of the mail. And if the post office was to let die by this administration, we don't think that the people of the country are going to put up with that. They're not going to let it be stolen. But if it were to die, part of what would die with it is that right to privacy and the right to what we call the sanctity of the mail. Okay, next question. David, I've heard politicians talk about postal banking. What is it and is it a good idea? Well, postal banking is the ability to do banking services at the United States Postal Service. There's already some pseudo banking services at the post office, like, for example, being able to get money orders, right? People can go to a bank and get a cashier's check or a bank check. Some banks, I guess, have money orders, but the money order typically is either from a for-profit company like a Western Union or you go to your uh, post office and I think it's like a dollar and you can get a money order. And this is a good way for people who have cash but need to make a payment where cash is not accepted to convert cash into another form of payment. So I think it's a really great thing that the post office uh, uh, offers money orders. Um, people will say, oh, money orders are often used for, for criminal activity. Uh, what isn't, right? That's an argument against Bitcoin. That's an argument sometimes against credit cards and the possibility cash. of skimming them. Cash is always used for criminal activity. Okay. Postal banking would be more, which is that you can even have an account, like a checking account, that is administered through the post office. And depending on where you live, you might have very limited or no banks in your neighborhood, but 
because there are uh, ubiquitous post offices and with the exception of like the very rural areas where you might have to drive really far to get to a bank or post office, there can be urban areas, for example, that have very few banks, but they do have a post office. So wouldn't it be great if you could get more people on the record within the banking world by allowing postal banking? And um, the bank lobby is hugely against this. You've got a huge bank lobby that is saying uh, that you've got to go and um, not uh, you, you, you have to prevent them from doing this you, they, they, because they're, it's going to take away from the integrity of the bank services that they can provide. It's really just they don't want to lose the money. Right. There's no good reason that banks have put forward for not doing postal banking other than what is the real reason, which is they're going to lose money. So I think that this would be absolutely fantastic. I think it would be a very, very progressive thing to do. But there are a lot of uh, it, factors that are pushing against it. And by the way, supermarket banking as well. You could have supermarket banking. And I know that now there are more and more supermarkets that have banks inside of them. And that allows people when they go and do their grocery uh, shopping to be able to get banking services as well. You can have actual supermarket banking as a concept. And it would... Um, serve as a sort of check and balance on the really big banks, U.S. Postal Service and supermarkets could offer free checking accounts, free savings account. Um, that would prompt banks to either match that or to have to give better service, because if it's the same thing, why would someone go to the bad service at their big local bank rather than the post office? Um, it would also, I think, for rural communities be a really, really good thing. And keeping money, quote, under the mattress or in cash is much more common in rural communities. And getting some of that money into the banking system would, would also be a really good thing. So I think that this is a fantastic idea. The reason we haven't seen it is that there are a lot of politicians who are in the pocket of the banking industry, as well as bank lobbyists pushing really, really hard against it. Here's how I feel about the value of our nation's postal service. The humble post office is a community fixture, a civic inheritance, a rural lifeline, and one of the last vestiges of a shared civic culture in America. Tolerate it, treasure it, and don't let the vicissitudes of global capitalism, contempt for government, or a viral outbreak take it away. Those are my sentiments, but not my words. They're from the American Conservative Magazine calling on people of all political persuasions to save this vital public institution. The men and women of the Postal Service have been steadfast in their duties, especially in times of national emergencies, literally delivering for the American people. In today's terrible pandemic, these workers have kept communication and commerce flowing. No matter who you are, how rich or poor, living in teeming inner cities or isolated rural reaches, postal employees are on the job so you and I can get our mail, medicines, food, household necessities, election ballots, and other basics brought right to our doors. A stamp is cheap, yet the wear, tear, and costs for the postal workforce can be high. For example, about 1,200 of them have been infected by COVID-19, and at least 44 have died. Yet, the entire public system is now under direct attack by a man-made pestilence called Trumpista vitriolitis that's emanating from the White House. By controlling a $10 billion line of credit that the post office must have to get through the current coronavirus depression, 
Trump is demanding cuts in the wages, benefits, and rights of our stalwart postal workers, plus authority over hiring top postal officials and the right to raise postal rates. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help stop Trump's power play to become America's postal potentate and privatizer-in-chief, go to the American Postal Workers Union at usmailnotforsale.org. This ad is a warning. Our democracy is under attack from the U.S. Supreme Court. In the middle of a deadly global pandemic, people across Wisconsin were planning on voting absentee to keep themselves and their families safe. But the night before the election, five Republican justices on the Supreme Court told thousands of people they would have to choose between risking their lives and forfeiting their right to vote. The Supreme Court favoring Republican interests over our democracy is nothing new. They gutted the Voting Rights Act, they invited billionaires and corporations to spend unlimited amounts trying to influence elections, they gave a green light to gerrymandering, voter ID laws, and voter roll purges. Now, a progressive movement is rising up to fight back, because it's quite possible the Wisconsin case won't be the last 2020 showdown over voting rights to be settled in the courts, and we simply can't trust this court to put aside partisan views and protect people's right to vote. Our courts are becoming too political, and it's time to say enough. Learn more about how you can join the fight by visiting demandjustice.org best. That's demandjustice.org best. If you grew up like I did, when you were in elementary school, you and your best classmates wore your best duds to school on the first day of school in May, and then you went outside during recess and skipped to some creepy song that you probably can't totally remember as you wrapped some ribbons around a maypole, allegedly in celebration of spring. That's pretty much all I remember learning about May Day during my American school indoctrination. But the truth is that May 1st is actually International Workers' Day, and it's an official holiday in 66 countries. Observers commemorate past labor struggles for workers' rights, including reducing workdays of 10 or more hours to an eight-hour workday ending seven days a week work schedules or establishing the weekend, addressing unsafe working conditions, and ending child labor. Officially, that is, because it certainly still happens in some places in the world. But International Workers' Day is mostly recognized as a celebration of workers in countries other than the United States. And that's weird, because the U.S. is where International Workers' Day got started. It all started in 1884 when the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, which is the predecessor of the American Federation of Labor, called for May 1st, 1886, to be the beginning of a nationwide movement for the eight-hour day. Even though the federal government already had a law that was supposed to guarantee federal employees an eight-hour workday, it wasn't enforced. And Illinois employers often made employees sign waivers of the law as a condition of employment. So the movement got started in Chicago because of this, and it was typical for workers to be forced to endure 10 or more hour workdays. 
Chicago labor organizers worked for two years to gain support for a citywide walkout to protest the long and grueling workdays, among other worker issues. Spearheading the effort were Lucy and Albert Parsons. Lucy had been born a slave in Texas in around 1853. She worked for the Freedmen's Bureau after the Civil War and moved to Chicago after marrying Albert, where she began writing and organizing seamstresses in the city. Albert was a printer, a member of the Knights of Labor, which was the first major labor organization in the U.S. He was an editor of the labor paper, The Alarm, and one of the founders of the Chicago Trades and Labor Assembly. The Parsons were among a group of anarchists who sought to put an end to all hierarchical structures, including government, that emphasized worker-controlled industry and valued direct action over the bureaucratic political process. And these people became respected household names across the country during this time of widespread labor organizing. That organizing resulted in more than 300,000 workers from 13,000 businesses across the United States walking off their jobs on Saturday, May 1st, 1886. Remember, there was no weekend at that time. That's what they were pushing for in the first May Day celebration in history. In Chicago, which was the epicenter for the eight-hour day agitators, 40,000 went out on strike. The protests continued into Sunday and Monday when the Chicago police attacked and killed several striking workers at the McCormick Reaper Works. A multi-day protest against the police violence was planned for May 4th through the 10th in Haymarket Square in Chicago, and just as many as had walked out of work were expected to attend, but rain kept many away. At the end of the first night of speakers, 176 Chicago policemen attacked the remaining crowd of a few hundred. Someone who has never been identified to this day threw a stick of dynamite, maybe at the police, maybe into the crowd. No one really knows. But it set off a blind firing melee by the police, not just into the crowd of protesters, but into their own ranks in the rainy darkness of Haymarket Square. The organizers of the protests, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fielden, Oscar Niebe, Michael Schwab, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, and Louis Ling were arrested and convicted of murder, though only three were even present at Haymarket, and those three were never identified as the person who threw the bomb. On November 11th, 1887, after many failed appeals, Parsons, Spies, Engel, and Fischer were hanged to death. Louis Ling, in his final protest, took his own life the night before his execution with an explosive device in his mouth. The remaining organizers, Fielden, Niebe, and Schwab, were pardoned six years later by Governor Altgeld, who publicly criticized the presiding judge for the travesty of justice committed against the organizers. Immediately after the Haymarket Massacre, big business and government conducted what some say was the very first Red Scare in this country. 
spun by mainstream media, anarchism became synonymous with bomb throwing and socialism became un-American. The common image of an anarchist became a bearded Eastern European immigrant with a bomb in one hand and a dagger in the other. But around the world, the story was different. In 1889, the International Socialist Conference declared that in commemoration of the Haymarket Massacre, May 1st would be an international holiday for labor known today as International Workers' Day. But not in the U.S., because between 1921 to 1958, May 1 was also known as Americanization Day a holiday of forced patriotism conceived after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, which ignited a renewed current of militancy within the American labor movement. And in 1955, at the peak of the anti-communist Red Scare, Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy led Congress to pass a resolution deeming May 1st Loyalty Day, which was made an annual holiday three years later. In fact, President Eisenhower said in his first Loyalty Day address to the nation that it should be a day for, quote, solemn reevaluation of those priceless gifts of freedom, which are our heritage. Now, you know, none of this was about freedom. It was about crushing dissent and destroying labor unions and workers' rights movements in the U.S. using the rabid anti-communist and anti-socialist sentiment as an excuse. What's worse, those holidays have been replaced by an even more insidious erasure of the deep history of labor struggle in this country with a banal beach getaway day we call Labor Day. It's supposed to honor workers, but it actually does not honor the real struggle for workers' rights in this country that the international workers' movement honors to this day. Enjoy your extra day off if you get it. But don't agitate for better pay, better benefits, or safety. Nothing like that. Just enjoy that hot dog at the beach, folks. In the U.S., May 1st, 2020, has been marked as the beginning of a new, protracted, nationwide movement and struggle for worker solidarity, workers' rights, and empowerment against the bloodthirsty capitalist forces that still force us to choose a paycheck over our personal safety, especially as businesses are pushing now to reopen amid the continued spread of COVID-19. Workers are actively challenging employers for basic safety measures like providing them PPE and paid sick leave, but the bosses are once again putting their profits over people's lives. Actions are being planned by a coalition of organizations under several banners to be held on the first day of every month after May until workers' demands are met. So let us join in and reclaim the rich history of labor struggle and unity in the U.S. as you respect striking workers wherever you encounter them across this country and never cross a picket line. Solidarity forever. Workers of the world, unite.
U.S. news media right now are all about saluting or celebrating frontline workers, the heroes of the coronavirus pandemic. That's great, but how deep does it go? Does it translate to ongoing awareness or substantive support for workers' right to health and safety, even when no pandemic is raging? And when workers act for themselves in an organized way, as thousands are doing right now across the country, well, then they stop being people and become labor and evidently move to a different, less friendly place in the elite media mind. There is no real labor beat as there once was in corporate media, and few journalists who see workers as their story or see stories through workers' eyes, day in and day out. We're joined now by one who does. Mike Elk is senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report, online at paydayreport.com. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mike Elk. It's great as always to be on your show, Janine. Well, straight information, first of all, because I don't actually know that folks who aren't actively seeking it out are going to be hearing it. So can you just give listeners an idea of what worker actions are happening right now around the country? And to what extent do they fit with the maybe textbook understanding of organized labor? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the largest strike wave that we've seen in any period. On my website, paydayreport.com, we've created a strike tracker. And in the last month, there have been over 50 Wildcat strikes. Last year was a record year for strikes. There were the most strikes in 15 years, and there weren't 50 strikes. So to see this many strikes in less than a month says that something fundamentally is changing in the country. And that's a big, big deal, especially with everything that's happening around the debate about how do we rebuild society in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So when you say wildcat strikes, just for folks who don't know, how does that differ? What kind of situation does that put workers in? What does that mean? Well, a wildcat strike means that workers are walking off the job illegally. Uh, Under labor law, you can only walk off the job when your contract has expired. In a wildcat strike, though, Workers simply say no, and they take a big risk. Unions can be sued. In some places, union leaders in the public sector can even be thrown in jail. So workers are literally risking their jobs with no legal protections to do this. But not many people are getting fired right now. And a big reason for that is that frontline essential workers are seen as heroes. And that type of energy is really going to change the conversation. Nobody really thought of grocery store workers as heroes before this. Now every chain is giving grocery store workers a $2 an hour raise. And after this is over, if grocery workers start going on strike, people are going to remember that. And workers are going to remember the power and the strikes of this moment. So while this is a really horrific, terrible moment full of death, it's an exciting moment where workers are taking power back. Absolutely. Well, I just need to ask you, what's your sense of what corporate media, elite media are missing or getting wrong when they talk about these heroic workers, when these workers take power into their own hands? Well, often they're not recognizing the organization involved in a lot of these efforts. In some places, you know, it'll happen that 20 or 30 workers call out sick or workers simply walk off the job, but they're not recognizing how much organizing goes into that. 
And some of that could be caused by the fact that reporters are doing a lot of this over the phone and not actually going out and sitting down with folks. And also that, you know, a lot of reporters are slammed. But the bigger issue is that all of a sudden, every reporter in this country is a labor reporter. Mm-hmm. Right. All of a sudden. And most people don't have a lot of experience covering that. Uh, and it's showing in some of the reporters. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to ask you about that because... Reporters need sources, of course. They need people to go on the record. And one thing that I hope is coming through in a lasting way is how difficult it is for workers, even status, high status workers like doctors or Navy captains, you know, how hard it is made for them to speak out and to talk about the conditions that they deal with. That's a factor for journalists. And yet, you managed to get around it, you know, you managed to get a story without, I think, asking someone to endanger themselves. So it really is about, I guess, putting in that work beforehand, right? It's an issue of trust, you know. People say, how does a small outlet like Payday Report get people to talk? You know, I've been covering the labor movement for 12 years now. My father's a labor leader. I was a shop steward as well. And People know my reputation, so workers know they can trust me. But that trust isn't always so easy to build. A lot of times, you know, one of my girlfriends joked that being a labor reporter was like being in the mob because I was always calling up people asking them to vouch for me. (laughs) And this is true. And it's a big issue that most workers are really scared to talk to the press, especially right now when people are scared about how they're going to keep their jobs. Well, and folks will have heard about, for example, the Amazon worker who tried to speak up and they leaked their PR document in which they laid out exactly how they were going to smear him and to make him the face of the labor and union movement and talk about how he wasn't very articulate, which, you know, he's an African-American man. So the power differential between what the owners can bring to bear against workers they got a much easier slide in the media than the workers themselves do. And journalists have to work to shift that balance. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right about that. I mean, you know, I was fired in a high profile union drive uh, at Politico and, you know, some companies aren't afraid of doing that. You know, people that head some of these big companies, all they care about is money. And if firing someone's going to save them money, they might do it. But what we're seeing is, A lot of these products are consumer brands, Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods. Right. And people are going to remember this. And I think alternatives might start emerging to some of this as a result. I mean, Amazon has been particularly dirty. And I think we have to put those alternatives in front of folks. I think there can be a sense that it's enough to just feel bad about it. um, And that's not enough. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to just call out, tell folks what summer things. I know that there's folks in Pittsburgh. I know that there's meat packers in Chicago. I know there's folks all around the country doing that risky thing of, of walking out. What are just some of the stories that you think folks should find out about? Well, I was just reading about a nursing home strike in Riverside, California, and there was a nursing home strike in Pittsburgh the other day. And nursing home workers are some of the most abused workers in the country. Really low pay, very dangerous situations often. And now a lot of nursing home workers are going on strike because they don't have working conditions. 
The other thing that's big is meatpacking workers. You know, meat packers work shoulder to shoulder and they all touch the same pieces of meat all day long. And it's easy in that environment for disease to spread. I mean, we just see uh, Albany, Georgia, a city of 70,000, has the fourth fastest community spread of any city in the country. And that's a city that meatpacking is the biggest employer in town. Two meatpackers that have died, they think, you know, it's linked to that. If you look at Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there have been 300 positive tests for COVID in that town. 80 of them are workers at the meatpacking plant. So we're really seeing the meatpackers and nursing assistants are really the folks that are the most exposed and are the biggest sites of mass outbreaks. You know, we're looking at nursing homes that 100 people in a nursing home get COVID. It's bad. And we hope, of course, that it will continue to mean something for journalists, even when we're not talking about a contagious disease. You know, the fact that the, that their conditions are difficult, are precarious, it, it, that means they're always that way, you know, and we have to kind of, we have to keep that alive, even when hopefully we come out the other side of this. Totally. I think this is starting to change the conversation, and it's going to be interesting when this ends to see where it goes. You have been writing about the food system for approximately a million years and the people who work in it, importantly. So first of all, we wanted to start with the cheery subject of why are meatpacking plants one of the top places with coronavirus clusters? Meatpacking plants have been sites of struggle um, for, for for decades in the United States. Um, and, you know, we, you, you've got uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle as, as kind of the, the, the original socialist tract uh, on the meatpacking plants and the struggles that go on, go on in there. Um, but what's been very interesting is, you know, the, the, the Jungle was published in 1907. Um, and... Uh, the, the the sort of call to socialize Chicago, um, which uh, that that uh, that book famously ends with, hasn't quite happened yet. Um, and instead, uh, the the, the meatpacking industry has um, uh, consolidated. And you've seen, uh, I mean, across the food system, and you know, through the periodic crises of capitalism, um, uh, you know, most recently in two thousand and eight, uh, we've seen increasingly a fewer slaughterhouses. Um, as the the food industry becomes more and more concentrated, uh, and that means that there aren't um, you know sort of mom and pop abattoirs, uh, there aren't uh, you know a sort of an archipelago of, of smaller slaughterhouses. You've got several um, large slaughterhouses only in the United States, and sometimes uh, you have to cross state lines in order to be able to um, to slaughter your uh, your animals uh, if, if you're a rancher. So the, the the problem then becomes that these uh, you know these these factories. Are, pl- you know, are places where um, uh, farmers and ranchers have no choice but to sell uh, their livestock. Uh, and then within the slaughterhouses, um, they are geared for maximum efficiency. Um, and uh, whether it's uh, poultry or whether it's hogs or whether it's um, uh, cattle, uh, these, uh, you know, th- these, these slaughterhouses are set up for workers to be right next to each other, um, engaging in, uh, you know, obviously sort of bloody practices. Um, there, there are uh, incredibly high rates of uh, exposure for workers to um, occupational injuries. Well, it's one of the most dangerous jobs in America. Um, and so, you know, 
the, the, these slaughterhouses are set up to be places where you know it's okay for workers to lose a finger. Um, and mm. if that's business as usual, uh, then under COVID, uh, you know, where you have frequent occupational injury, um, it's not terribly surprising that uh, in a place where you know there's zero PPE um, and there's zero sort of protection for workers, or minimal kind of protection for workers at best, um, and where the number of, of inspectors has been dropping uh, as the the power of the meat industry increases, uh, it's it's not surprising that these become hubs of infection. Right. So now Trump has put out an executive order demanding that they remain open and OSHA has kind of signaled that it won't be taking enforcement too seriously. So what does that mean in these places that are already kind of horrific to work to work in? Um, it means that workers will die. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the as, as you've so often observed on Belaved, Belaved, particularly of late, um, uh, and you know, I, I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller here. But you know, I, I'm uh, what you've observed is that um, essential is a synonym for sacrificial, uh, and that uh, to be uh, an essential worker is to be the kind of worker, usually a worker of color, usually underpaid, um, you, you know, usually free from the constraints of, of unionism, um, to 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 be thrown into uh, a situation where uh, workers will die. There's a kind of sense of, well, I know one thing that really has touched me is how people have begun to respond to people who work as nurses or as even as delivery people for, um, you know, grocery stores or even grocery people working in grocery stores. These are people who are being paid minimum wage or less and whose lives are put at risk. And sort of people are for the first time saying, hey, these people who are getting paid, you know, $9 an hour and are, you know, gig workers or contingent workers if they're drivers or whatever, these people are putting their lives on the line for us. And the kind of work that they do is life-saving. It's like it's the glue that keeps the society together. And, you know, I look at that and, and you know, you can listen to radio shows and listen to people who never felt their lives meant shit for people, you know, just devalued. And you know, never had any worth as people in the economy and the capitalist economy. These were failures, and suddenly people are saying, "Hey, you guys are heroes. You guys are keeping the wheels going for us to get food, and we are so grateful." And and then you've got people coming out of the Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos, who, you know, is worth about 120 billion dollars, is firing some of the warehouse workers who are saying, "Hey, we're not allowed." to, you know, wear masks and, um, you know, keep distance in the warehouses. So I think you've seen this, that, you know, one of the leading, um, a number of leading worker organizers who just sort of said, I can't take this. You know, I can't let these workers in these warehouses, whether they're in Walmart or they're in Amazon or, you know, Whole Foods or wherever they are, these people who everybody is now recognizing are playing a really critical role in their lives um, are beginning to organize and they're beginning to, whether it's online or it's through petitions and through um, kind of spontaneous strikes, which you see 
televised now. You know, you know, the revolution can be televised again in a new way. And um, so, so the positive thing is that I think the exposure of what neoliberal corporate capitalism has produced in America, which is this enormous chasm between somebody like Jeff Bezos, who has this obscene amount of money and is firing workers who are simply saying, hey, could you give us a mask and give us, you know, a couple more dollars so that when we go out and get hazard pay for the kind of, you know, really dangerous work we're doing in these warehouses, whether it's in a grocery store or in a, you know, an Amazon delivery center or whatever. So I think, I think, and the same with nurses and with custodians in hospitals, these people who have always been treated like, you know, failures are suddenly be seen as people who are on the front line, really courageous people doing really, really important work. And um, so, I mean, that gives me a certain sense of hope that there is a kind of paradigm shift people way of thinking about what work is in a corporate society and realizing that the people who do this work have for the last 40 years under since at least Reagan have been getting nothing you know they're, they, they've been working double time double amount two jobs three jobs their family income is pretty much stagnant and uh, they're now being you know massacred by massive layoffs and massive job cuts and massive you know the, much of the stimulus money is never going to reach them. And so I think when you put all these parts of the puzzle together, you see the possibility of people waking up to a new reality, you know, seeing corporate neoliberal capitalism in a new frame. And, and it's very personal. You know, it's not an academic sort of abstract thing that usually when you talk about corporate policy or the economy, people you know, have trouble following. This is real personal. You know, this has to do with, well, is my father going to make it through the week? Am I going to be able to pay my mortgage? Is my roommate going to make it through my student debt? You know, how am I going to manage this? You know, it was a big deal that we just went through April 1st and that's mortgage time. And a lot of people realized they weren't going to be able to get, keep their, you know, mortgage going and also pay them for the groceries. I mean, this is just very, very basic, stuff that usually is read out of the paper, read out of people's consciousness, and people have to struggle with it individually. In the current framework, there's so many millions and millions of people who are simultaneously coming up against the pain of this reality that there's the possibility before the right wing takes over and crushes whatever, you know, um, progressive possibilities might exist here, which I think are considerable, that the population at large are going to emerge with a new consciousness about the power of these large corporations, the enormous gap between the rich and the poor, and the ability of workers using media and, you know, all kinds of social media and, and all kinds of protests that we haven't seen, you know, maybe since Occupy Wall Street, but on a much more massive basis, coming out and challenging the overall structure of our economy right now and the political economy that's growing out of it. So, so let me. Yeah, please. I'm sorry. Conversation to um, a larger question. Okay. Going for 40 minutes here, but I want to uh, cover um, one other area that you've explored 
before, and it sort of ties into uh, this thing that you that we've been talking about here that might be positive is that people are able to see these workers on the front lines, and that's going to make them more aware of what working class people are doing and and the way they make our society function and how we really can't survive without their contributions on a daily basis. And one thing that I will say is as much as I loathe the corporate media and what it does to give us all the different propaganda that we have for how we tolerate certain things in our society that we probably shouldn't be so used to. One thing I've noticed about CNN is very regularly they're going to these workers who have contracted the coronavirus or who are dealing with coronavirus in the workplace. It's just something you didn't see before this outbreak. They weren't putting these kinds of voices on air on such a regular basis. So that's something that has been, I think, a a net benefit to um, dealing with this pandemic collectively. Uh, The sense that we're all in it together, I think, you're seeing elites start to recognize that they can get sick from poor people, from working people, just as much as rich people can get. We can get sick from rich people as well. Um, and and so I wanted to talk about this issue. Something you've explored before is who deserves safety and who doesn't deserve safety in a, a capitalist society and how we are taught to think about who deserves these protections and who does not deserve these kinds of protections. and When we think of who makes up this force of people that are called essential workers right now, we see a lot of these people uh, and we're we're recognizing who gets to work from home, who doesn't have that luxury of being able to work from home. And I think that's a clear aspect of our capitalist uh, economy. And also, you know, this fact that they're paid so very little for what they're doing that we don't really value what they're doing. Um, I, I see that as being something you've explored before this dichotomy of the upstairs versus the downstairs and how you have that structure. And and that has some interplay with how you decide who deserves safety and who doesn't. So why don't you talk a little bit about that for us? Okay. First of all, let me say, Kevin, I think you put that brilliantly. I think that was a really powerful and profound statement. I mean, I agree with you that the corporate media inadvertently is highlighting images of people we've always viewed as not worthy of being on TV and not worthy of chronicling. And I think you're right, because I watch a lot of TV, that um, that we're seeing for the first time faces of ordinary working people who are generally, as you say, if you think of capitalism as an upstairs, downstairs architecture, and the people living downstairs or in the basement are almost never seen. There's no light down there. They're not in the public discussion. And the whole way the the society is organized says, well, there's a lot of stairways from the upward downstairs to the upstairs. So the people still on the bottom floors are worthless. They're people that really don't deserve our attention. And Kevin, I just think you put it really, really well that now the, you know, these are frontline people, as you say, and they're being partly featured that way. And they're being heard and they're acting. You know, you're seeing, you know, um, delivery workers and, you know, um, carpenters laid off and, um, you know, healthcare custodians. And you're just seeing all the people who were invisible, um, which allowed the fundamentals of neoliberal capitalism to survive, which is the idea that we're stratified by a sense of value 
in terms of a small number of people who are viewed as essentially contributing the real creativity and value that our society offers, and a large number of people who are basically parasiting off those people who are the creative people sort of living upstairs or on the mezzanine or something like that. And so I think that that's, if you think that upstairs, downstairs, that capitalism is an upstairs, downstairs house. And the people in the downstairs are sort of shadowy and visible and they're not worth very much. They're very often people of color and women and people, immigrants and people of other, you know, they're not worthy. And so capitalism survives by imprinting in people this sense that we don't really need any kind of universal public goods because most of the public is not worthy of receiving it. They're losers. They're people who have not worked hard or have, you know, they're criminals or they're, you know, they're sponging off the creative, hardworking people. And I think that whole paradigm is vulnerable to being shaken up today in the, in the very way that you said, Kevin. And I think that's super important. You know, I think that if that were to enter the public consciousness, as I think it's just beginning to now, and this sort of, you know, maybe the corporate media will, will come to contradict itself in unsurprising ways, in the sense that these images are very, very powerful. And um, if you suddenly have a kind of bizarre flipping of this upstairs, downstairs thing and say, wow, the people who are really keeping this house together are the people downstairs who never get to see the light of day and never get, you know, a sense of being valued. And, you know, once you do that, you really threaten the fundamentals of capitalism as we understand it, because capitalism is based on the idea that most people do not deserve protection. And that's why we don't have large universal human rights social programs that protect everybody, whether it's their health or their education or, you know, their housing or their food or whatever. So everything you were talking about, Kevin, in my mind is potentially, you know, shaking up the, the sort of brain image that keeps the whole system going. And when you shake that up, you're creating the preconditions of some sort of very big shift in the way people think about how economies should be organized and the way political systems work and so forth. And so I think that possibility is very real and we want to do everything we can to encourage, you know, this sort of new way of thinking about workers and frontline workers and working class people um, who are in the shadows and never get, you know, I can't say I'm super optimistic that this picture will um, play out in the way that we would all like it to, but at least there's the possibility that this can emerge. The novel coronavirus has wreaked havoc on the economy and ballooned the unemployment rate, but some financial relief is finally on the way as lawmakers have agreed to terms on a new stimulus bill for those most affected. OPR Straight Cash correspondent Charles Dearborn joins me now with more. Charles, thank you. Hi, Leslie. So tell us, what's Washington doing to help ease the blow of this pandemic? Well, after weeks of partisan gridlock, Congress has signed off on a stimulus package that sets aside $1,200 in a trust for each American until they prove they're responsible enough to handle it. Here 
Here's how junior Montana Senator Steve Daines explained the historic relief package. We've given this a lot of thought and decided that instead of mailing out checks, we'll put this money into 330 million separate accounts that Americans will be able to access when they're a little bit older and demonstrate they can handle the responsibility of that much money. Sounds like a fair deal. When can taxpayers expect to see their names on these trust funds? They could see it within the next few weeks, provided they do all their chores, keep their grades up, and stay out of trouble with the law. It'd probably help if they stopped hanging around those knuckleheads down the street. Without a doubt. But beyond that, what steps can people take to show they're mature enough to start withdrawing some of this relief aid? Well, getting a part-time job would certainly help, or just showing that you can pay your bills on time. Hmm. Officials really just want to see that this stimulus money will be used in a responsible way, and that you're not just going to waste it all on pot and video games. Sound advice. Thank you, Charles, for the report, and a big thanks to Congress for holding the people accountable. We'll be back in a moment. Let's talk about another aspect of the industry. Listeners may have heard that workers in meatpacking plants, for example, are falling sick in large numbers and in some cases being threatened with job loss if they want to protect their health. You've written recently for Medium about the conditions for agricultural workers and in strong terms. What should we know about the way the agricultural system treats people? Yeah, you know, this is one of the biggest revelations of the pandemic. It, it is applying a stress test to our entire society, not just the food system. But when it comes to the food system, one of the things that it's revealing is a semi underside that is well known to everybody within agriculture, but tends to be a revelation to people outside of agriculture. Outside of agriculture, I think it's pretty common for people to feel like it is a very vast global web of logistics that delivers anything you want just in time because that's the way that most of us experience it. So you imagine, you know, computer systems and sophisticated software and blinking lights and high technology. And in fact, all of that does exist. But none of that would work if you didn't have people that were in the soil working to harvest, that were not actually hacking away at carcasses and meatpacking plants, that weren't pushing enormous amounts of groceries onto shelves and doing all of the back of the house work that none of us ever see. Mm And that system, you know, I refer to this term as the structure of agriculture, is a system that looks very much like that social hierarchy that many of us will remember from grade school, where we had slaves at the bottom of the pyramid and the pharaoh or king up at the top of the pyramid, fewer and fewer people benefiting as you go up the, the pyramid. In agriculture, we still have pretty much that system. And in the United States in particular, because of our history, Not very long ago, the people that performed all of the jobs that I just listed right now or their equivalents, those were performed by enslaved people, people whom we forced to do this for no pay, for no compensation. We appropriated their labor. And that era is not that long ago. Mm -hmm. You know, as everyone listening knows, emancipation didn't occur, at least officially, until 1865. But the fact is that emancipation never really came to agriculture in the sense that we still don't pay the full value of the labor that's required to make the entire system work. Now, you know, I could spend a lot of time talking to you about that, but we recently have been forced to recognize how essential these workers are by actually giving them that official designation. Essential means without you, the whole thing doesn't work. But there's asymmetries here. One major asymmetry is we say on the one hand that they're essential. We would like to compel them to go to work so that the rest of us could have the comforter still ordering in our T-bone sticks and what have you. 
but we don't pay these people in a way that reflects how essential they are. That's one asymmetry. The other asymmetry is that they do work that no one in this country is willing to do. There's lots of ways that I can support that statement, but one way is that under high periods of unemployment, like the one that we're going into right now, you would think that unemployed people would seek whatever job is available to them. So there is a labor shortage in agriculture to do all of the field labor and packing processing that I just described, and Americans are not doing that work. That is actually verifiable. One of the ways that you can verify it is that we have a program that's called the Domestic Guest Worker Program that seeks to backfill for the labor shortage in agriculture when domestic workers will not do that work. And they are required to show that they've advertised, that they've recruited, that they've done everything possible to hire citizens to do this work. And only when they certify that they can't get enough people domestically to do that work are they then granted an allotment of visas to bring in people from outside of the country. And that's actually how we run the food system. So they're essential in the sense that there's a supply and demand issue. There's a mismatch of supply and demand. There's a demand for agricultural labor. We're not filling in it domestically until we bring in people internationally, migrants, to do this work for us. And we exploit them because we don't pay them the fair value of their labor. So that's the structure of our food system. It's very much modeled on antebellum you know, plantation economics. It reminds me also of... Um, restaurants, you know, the so-called tipped wage, so that you can pay someone $2.13 an hour, you know, and that stemming, the history of that coming from restaurants, along with the Pullman Porter Company, just not wanting to pay formerly enslaved people, you know, and wanting them to have to rely on tips. And that continues with us today. And every time folks try to get rid of that tipped wage or to raise it, the restaurant industry complains, you know, um, that it, they simply don't. It's another category of person that has been designated essential but expendable, you, you might say. That's it, exactly. And I learned from you that cravenly, the farm industry, those domestic guest workers that you were just talking about, the industry is now trying to cut their wages. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a phenomenon that all of us are observing at the moment that. We could make this a political conversation, and, and I will try to steer away from that. But the fact is that policy is involved. And the phenomenon that I'm referring to is the phenomenon that's known typically as the fog of war. When you have a major crisis that is absorbing the public's attention, this is a prime time to try to push through policy goals that normally would just be completely intolerable, unpalatable to the public. And so one of those goals is that in spite of the obviously exploitative nature of the structure of the food system that I've just described to you, major players in the system still want to squeeze more out of that supply chain. And they don't see the workers as people who have the same needs as they and everybody else in this country do to have such things as, for instance, occupational safety standards applied to their workplace to have health benefits, to have retirement benefits, to earn enough, to have dignified livelihood, meaning you can afford decent housing, you can afford to feed yourself and your family. We actually see them as inputs. You know, that's special agricultural language. So input is the machinery you need, the tractors and all of that. It's the fertilizers, the seeds that you need and so on. And labor is seen as an input. And the way that you try to uh, fatten up your profits is to cut the cost of your inputs so that you get greater margin. 
And so this is the policy agenda that is being driven right now under this fog of war underneath the pandemic. The language that the Secretary of Agriculture, who very much backs this agenda, has used, that he says that this is wage relief for farmers. What farmers actually need is fair prices for what they produce, which by and large they don't get right now. You know, they don't exist in a competitive environment and they don't have the leverage where they can actually negotiate fair prices for them. But that's actually what they need. If they could negotiate fair prices, they could afford to have it in their economy to pay all of their costs. But that's not the situation that we have right now. So what you have is the top of this pyramid that I described earlier, which is essentially the highly concentrated agribusiness sector, attempting to exploit the moment to cut as many costs as possible. And one of those costs is the cost of farm labor. And they're cravenly taking advantage of the fact that for all the reasons that I just described, these are people that are politically invisible. They don't have muscle. You know, many of them are domestic guest workers in the country. They sign paperwork that says they're only here to work in fields. That's all. And when they're done, they return home or else they're not documented. And so what are they going to do when they're exploited? Sue? They have no standing. And so that's being cravenly exploited. There was a very nice piece by him of Corchado in yesterday's New York Times, whose headline just captures the situation that we're in right now. The headline is, if a worker is essential, they can't be illegal. Yes. That's the quandary that we're dealing with right now. That's the hypocrisy that we need to recognize in the nation's labor and immigration policy. We're not valuing these people for, at the very least, the value that they bring to the economy, much less as human beings. Well, how do we take our understanding of that situation and turn it into action to make things different? What can folks do? Well, I think we've actually reviewed some of these things, so I'll I'll give you a real quick list. So I mentioned that this is a stress test of the food system, and you know, so the, the brittle points, the cracking points have become readily available. We need a food system that is fungible, that has redundancies built in. The the so-called efficiencies that have been built into the highly specialized industrial model that we have right now, we are now learning, do not serve us when you have a situation where a single thing that is unpredicted takes out one pillar of the food system and then the whole thing comes crumbling down. That's not the kind of food system that we need. We need one that is more distributed, meaning that there are more nodes within the food system that can respond in the volumes and quantities and the formats that are necessary for where people are going to be using this food. Now, a very good example of that is that the farmers that are doing well right now are the so-called small-scale family farmers. These are folks that produce in volumes and who distribute in local and regional networks where they can respond very quickly to where the schools are now becoming redistribution points for SNAP, uh, for instance, or for school food that needs to be picked up by students that otherwise might not have access to that food because they're not coming to school every day and so on, or through farmer's markets, another very important redistribution method, which is very fungible. So we're learning that that's actually what works. We need to invest more in these kinds of highly distributed systems and less in the highly concentrated systems. We need to reform immigration policy to recognize the economic value and the human rights that we need to accord to everyone that's making us wealthy and keeping us well-fed in this country. We need to reform labor standards so that it's safe for people that are working in the field and it looks like they're living in the 21st century and not back in the 19th century or the 18th century. 
And there are very specific people who are responsible for making the decisions that I've just described. Everybody can talk to their congressional representatives and have them talk to their congressional leadership, you know, the senior leadership of, of Congress. Because these are the people who are pressured by the folks that are at the top of the food system pyramid. And the folks at the top of that food system pyramid, I'll just give you, you know, some actual organizations and names. Probably the single most influential agricultural lobby is the American Farm Bureau Federation. They say they represent farmers, but they actually represent agribusiness. And the president of that organization is Zippy Duvall. Let that man know what you think about everything that you've heard here. Somebody else that plays a very big role in terms of fruits and vegetable production in the United States is the president of the Western Growers Association. That individual president that leads that organization is a guy by the name of Dave Puglia. Let him know what you would like to see instead of the system that we have right now. The person that's carrying the water for all of this in the White House is President Trump's chief of staff. He very much says you know, his whole career has been about small government. That individual's name is Mark Meadows. And by the way, I'll remind everyone that we're living in a time, you know, where to quote Noam Chomsky a, a couple of weeks ago, every fiscal conservative is hiding, you know, their copy of Ayn Rand and is lining up for benefits from the nanny state. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of hypocrisy that we need to, uh, you know, throw in these people's faces because that's the urgency that the degree of exploitation and dysfunction that we're living through demands. Probably one of the biggest cheerleaders for this uh, dysfunctional food system that we have is the current Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary Purdue, Sonny Purdue. Uh, I would definitely uh, advise that people let him know that we're seeing everything that they're doing and the cynicism with which they're treating farm laborers in particular, but the way in which they're using the situation to essentially just throw more money at a system that clearly is failing. And the last set of people that I'll name, because they're in the headlines every day, even though folks don't know them by name, these are the folks that run the meatpacking industry in the country. And I'll particularly recommend that people contact Larry Pope, who heads Smithfield Foods, and Noel White, who heads Tyson Foods, because these are the folks that are making the decisions to force people to show up to work. They're interested in maintaining share value more than they're interested in preserving the health of their workers. They put out press releases saying that they value nothing more than the health of their workers, but they're forcing them to work under highly unsafe conditions given the ideology of this particular pandemic, the coronavirus. We know how to stave for their spread, but they're actually not willing to adopt the recommendations that come from CDC specifically because it would slow their production lines. It would slow their volume. Well, this is happening to them anyway, which is why they're reacting in a way that demonstrates plutocracy in action. They've told the president what to do, and the president responded by saying through an executive order that these plants must remain open, you know, implicitly that workers are compelled to show up to work against their health interests. So these are the sorts of things that these leaders are condoning that they need to hear about that eaters are not going to support.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, demand Congress pass the people's bailout. From the frustration and disappointment over the first COVID-19 relief package, which favored the rich and offered crumbs to some and nothing to others, the people's bailout was born. Their first major action was May Day, hosting a live stream of workers and labor activists around the country calling for safety and hazard pay for essential workers, rent and mortgage cancellations for those out of work, and boycotts on big companies that aren't supporting their workers. While that work continues, their focus is now on improving relief bills from the federal government. They have five clear demands. Pass a bill that, one, makes health the top priority with no exceptions. Two, provides economic relief directly to the people. Three, rescues workers and communities, not corporate executives. Four, makes a down payment on a regenerative economy while preventing further crises. And five, protects our democratic process while protecting each other. This campaign is sponsored by 13 progressive action organizations, including the Working Families Party, Sunrise Movement, Indivisible, and the Indigenous Environmental Network, and is co-signed by literally hundreds more. The pressure is working, and some progress has already been made. On their website, the campaign says, quote, Everyday people fought for and won significant relief measures from Congress in the last relief package, but millions of us are in continued need of urgent relief. As Congress develops further recovery packages to address the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, we must make sure that they prioritize the health and well-being of all people, not corporations and the wealthy, unquote. Go to thepeoplesbailout.org to easily write and call your members of Congress demanding that they take effective, inclusive, equitable, and preventative legislative action. You can also download their social toolkit and share your personal story. Use the hashtag peoplesbailout to join in on social media. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making sure your tax dollars are being used to help all those who need it during this crisis, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the people's bailout via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Ideas that are lying around Friedman One of history's most extreme free market economists was wrong about a whole lot, but he was right about that. In times of crisis, seemingly impossible ideas suddenly become possible. But whose ideas? Sensible, fair ones designed to keep as many people as possible safe, secure, and healthy? Or predatory ideas designed to further enrich the already unimaginably wealthy, while leaving the most vulnerable further exposed. The world economy is seizing up in the face of cascading shocks. COVID-19 can be 
characterized as a pandemic. In the wake of the coronavirus crisis, stocks have stopped trading on Wall Street after a 7% drop. This is a historical day, the biggest drop we've seen since that crash in 1987. The drop was spurred by a growing oil price war as the market was already weakened by coronavirus fears. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all. In the midst of this widespread panic, corporate lobbyists of all stripes are, of course, dusting off all the ideas they had lying around. Trump is pushing a suspension of the payroll tax, which could bankrupt Social Security, providing the excuse to cut it or privatize it completely, an idea that has been lying around for a very long time. A worker at his or her option ought to be allowed to put some of their own money in a, you know, in a, in a private savings account. Lying around on both sides of the aisle. When I argued that we should freeze federal spending, I meant Social Security as well. I meant Medicare and Medicaid. And then there are the ideas being floated to bail out some of the wealthiest and most polluting sectors in our economy. We are working very closely with the cruise line industry, likewise with the airline industry, the two great industries, and we'll be helping them through this patch. Bailouts for fracking companies, not to mention cruise ships, airlines, and hotels, handouts which Trump could benefit from personally. Which is a big problem because the virus isn't the only crisis we face. There's also climate disruption, and these industries that are getting rescued with our money are the ones driving it. Trump has also been meeting with the private health insurers. We're meeting with the top executives of the health insurance companies. The very ones who have made sure that so many Americans can't afford the care they need. And what are the chances they don't have their hands out? It seems like the whole pandemic is getting outsourced. Well, Mr. President, thank you for inviting us here today, along with our colleagues from Walmart and Walgreens and our partners at CVS. Normally, you'd view us as competitors, but today we're focused on a common competitor, and that's defeating the spread of the coronavirus. The Fed's first move was to pump $1.5 trillion into the financial markets, with more undoubtedly on the way. But... If you're a worker, especially a gig worker, there's a very good chance you're out of luck. If you do need to see a doctor for care, there's a good chance no one's going to help you pay if you aren't covered. And if you want to heed the public health warnings to stay home from work, there's also a chance that you won't get paid. Of course, you still need to pay your rent and all of your debts, medical, student, credit card, mortgage. The results are predictable. Too many sick people have no choice but to go to work, which means more people contracting and spreading the virus. And without comprehensive bailouts for workers, we can expect more bankruptcies and more homelessness down the road. Look, we know this script. In 2008, the last time we had a global financial meltdown, the same kinds of bad ideas for no-strings-attached corporate bailouts carried the day and regular people around the world paid the price. And even that was entirely predictable. 13 years ago, I wrote a book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. It described a brutal and recurring tactic by right-wing governments. After a shocking event, a war, coup, terrorist attack, market crash, or natural disaster, they exploit the public's disorientation, suspend democracy, push through radical free market policies that enrich the 1% at the expense of the poor and middle class. But here is what my research has taught me. Shocks and crises don't always go the shock doctrine path. In fact, 
it's possible for crisis to catalyze a kind of evolutionary leap. Think of the 1930s, when the Great Depression led to the New Deal. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. In the United States and elsewhere, governments began to weave a social safety net so that the next time there was a crash, there would be programs like Social Security to catch people. The right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. Look, we know what Trump's plan is, a pandemic shock doctrine featuring all the most dangerous ideas lying around, from privatizing Social Security to locking down borders to caging even more migrants, Hell, he might even try canceling elections. But the end of this story hasn't been written yet. It is an election year, and social movements and insurgent politicians are already mobilized. And like in the 1930s, we have a whole bunch of other ideas lying around. Do we believe that everybody should be entitled as a right to health care? Yeah! Do not stop organizing and fighting until all unhoused folks who want shelter have shelter. Canceling student debt. It makes so much sense that uh, if you're sick that you should not be penalized where you don't have an income. Many of these ideas were dismissed as too radical just a week ago. Now they're starting to seem like the only reasonable path to get out of this crisis and prevent future ones. Now here's something that helps explain the difference between the testing situation in South Korea and the US. The South Korea, like European countries and Canada, has universal single payer insurance. And that means that it's easier to mobilize and also people know what to do. There is pretty much one answer for how to get testing. The US is a patchwork of countless different systems. And so you can't say, here's exactly the steps that every American should take in order to get tested. And with Washington suddenly in the giant stimulus business, this is precisely the time for the stimulus that many of us have been talking about for years. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. It's called the Green New Deal. Instead of rescuing the dirty industries of the last century, we should be boosting the clean ones that will lead us into safety in the coming century. If there is one thing history teaches us, it's that moments of shock are profoundly volatile. We either lose a whole lot of ground, get fleeced by elites and pay the price for decades, or we win progressive victories that seemed impossible just a few weeks earlier. This is no time to lose our nerve. The future will be determined by whoever is willing to fight harder for the ideas they have lying around. What are the pros and cons of this approach? From a public health perspective, the I spoke to someone from Georgia State University in Atlanta, and he said that the, that the biggest problem he saw, just from like a contagion perspective, is that a lot of the businesses that reopen are high touch. So in order for someone to get their hair cut, the stylist has or the barber has to be sort of up in their personal space. You cannot get a socially distanced right. haircut. Right. Uh, s- same with a manicure, same with 
somebody serving you a plate of food, they're going to have to lean over you to pass food to the person sitting next to you. So you, you end up in a situation where a lot of the businesses that can come back are putting people in particularly dangerous situations, even, you know, relative to all the other types of businesses there might be. And then you also bring in a group of people who are particularly vulnerable to some of the uh, adverse effects of the coronavirus. The service industry is primarily made up of people of color, especially in Georgia, which is a really diverse state. You get mostly people of color, mostly people from uh, working class or poor backgrounds who have poor access to health care in even the best of times. Uh, Georgia has no Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a lot of people who sweep out salons or, or serve drinks or, you know, bus tables who are uh, in a situation where they can't get health care if they need it. They don't have paid time off. So I think that the particular way this has been done is particularly dangerous, even if it's possible in some places to bring some businesses back. Um, the way this has been approached makes it onerous in a way that it doesn't have to be. Why is it being approached this way? Um, that is an excellent question. And one that I put, posed to everyone who I talked to, um, there are various theories. Um, the official explanation is that from the state government and from uh, Governor Kemp is that uh, these people want to get back to work. These small businesses want to reopen, that it can be done safely with protective measures and that we can get income back to people who Uh, who need it. The less generous explanation is that there has been pressure from business owners who are powerful within the state on the state government to make this move so that they can put people back to work. And also from a fiscal perspective for the state, if a business reopens and an, an employee of that business decides not to go back to work because they fear infection or because they are at heightened risk because of existing health problems, that person from what anybody can tell about this order, that person is no longer eligible for state unemployment benefits. So Mm -hmm. it saves the state some money because Mm -hmm. if, you know, if a particular worker is not in favor of this, it doesn't really matter as long as their boss is, you know? Yeah. I've heard that argument that you're really just trying to get people off of a safety net and, I mean, yeah, people are going to want, if you don't have a substantial safety net and you also have a government that's trying to reopen things so that it can, you know, not feel the responsibility for people's welfare and income and instead say, hey, if you can't work, then that, or if your business fails, that's on you. We told you you could open. Right. Yeah. I think that there is, uh, there is a vested interest by those in control of these policies for, the risk to be assumed by individuals making choices instead of paying attention to how the reopening is set up to be coercive in those choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the order does not force anyone to reopen, of course, but if a business does reopen and it's in your options are either go back to work and uh, risk infection or stay home and no longer be eligible for unemployment, then that is that is not a, an equal decision. That is that is a, a decision that the state has seemingly purposefully weighted toward you going back to work and risking infection uh, because it's no longer willing to support your uh, pursuit of safety at home. Um, and then Georgia also has some unique 
fiscal issues that might be playing into this uh, that I that I heard mentioned by people as a possibility for the reopening is that. Um, in 2014-2015, uh, the state amended its constitution to cap the state income tax at 6%. Uh, and that means that it would be difficult to raise taxes to fund further unemployment at the moment, like right now. Because you'd have There's to change a- the state constitution. Right. You'd have to reamend the state constitution okay. and the the state Republican Party, which controls the state government, is not amenable to that. Um, so you'd have to get over the logistical issues and the ideological issues to raise more money to deepen the unemployment pool yeah. uh, to pay out benefits. And that is just really hard to do. So now that we've closed down the retail and service economy almost everywhere except Sweden, and Sweden is operating a a very dicey experiment to see if they can reach herd immunity without doing much social separating, currently the death rate in Sweden is nine times what their neighbor's death experience has been. So this is is a a tough uh, path to try to follow, but... American governors are now determined that even though the rate of infection has not actually slowed down, that they are going to start lifting the mandatory closing. Our governor says that restaurants, bars, hair salons, and retail shops can reopen on Monday. And of course, people are not going to just go rushing back into those places because most people know that they're still not safe. And shop owners who have to restrict the number of people who can come in and try to get them to stay several feet apart will not be able to have the volume of business necessary to turn a profit. But what lifting the ban does is it will keep those business owners from applying for business stoppage insurance, and it will keep their staff from drawing unemployment. This means that they have to go back to paying their landlord, they have to go back to paying their utility bill, and it cuts them out of being able to apply for any special assistance from either the state or the federal government. This is vicious, cannibalistic capitalism on the part of several governors in the United States. Rather than change the system, to recognize the lethal nature of the pandemic, they're going to force people to die to support an economic system that is obscenely out of date, an economic system that should have been ended in the early 20th century and now in the 21st century is just killing us. But the one thing that should be obvious to everyone is that all of these billionaires crying out to send people back to work are realizing that they were never the ones who were making their money. Their employees are the ones who are making money, and without the people that they have refused to give health care, a living wage, and make education available to them, without those people, they will go broke. But here is what you can bank on. Missouri's Governor Parsons will not be going to a bowling alley and renting shoes and using one of the bowling alley's balls. 
His family will not be crowded into a booth at TGI Fridays, and they won't be getting their hair cut at Hudson Hawk Barbershop. They want you to risk your life, but they will not be risking theirs. There are very few things that will make me dive for the TV remote to change channels faster than hearing the voice of Bill Crystal. But even he, and if you don't know him, let me just tell you, this guy is so far to the right that most Nazis wouldn't be seen in public with him. But even he has bemoaned the hypocrisy of sending employees back into meatpacking plants where hundreds of employees have been diagnosed with COVID-19 and where many have already died. In the current system, the corporation is giving uh, is being given a waiver by the federal government, giving a liability waiver for any incidents that may occur by putting thousands of employees inches apart working in the meatpacking industry. But if any of the workers refuse to go into that unsafe circumstance, they can be fired and they will not, not then draw unemployment benefits. And yes, this is specifically Republican hubris but still you can't see it as being separate and apart from a system of capitalism that favors profit over people. Now, I'm a Southern boy, and I don't want to run out of country ham for my biscuits, and I don't want to be denied pulled pork. But if I have to pay more for it so that these guys can have a safe work environment, well, what kind of monster would object to that? other than Republican elected officials in Iowa. We've always hoped that electing women to high office would give us better government, but in a word, Kim Reynolds was obviously the wrong woman to elect. Years ago, Warren Buffett made the observation that class warfare has been going on for years and the rich people are winning. The current crisis brings into focus who is valued in society and who we believe we can discard or disregard. (coughs) People, this seriously calls for, and and I don't use this word lightly, this calls for a revolution. Nothing short of the poor demanding a more fair distribution of wealth will work. The rich will not do the right thing simply because it is the right thing to do. They will, however, do the right thing when they are given no other options. And that is the point that America must come to. Last year, Frank Snowden published this frighteningly prophetic book, Epidemics and Society. Now, he's a history professor at Yale, so he wasn't actually trying to predict a pandemic a few months ago, but he was painstakingly describing the way that epidemics either shape society or show society who they are, like holding up a mirror to them. This pandemic is forcing us to realize who we value and who we don't. It is no accident that people of color are dying in numbers way out of proportion to the white population. Because as in the plague and other epidemics, the people who live in the most crowded conditions, 
the people who have the poorest diets, the people with the least access to health care, are much more likely to die. And as we are seeing in Trump's insistence that meatpacking employees go back to their dangerous and low-paying jobs, we cannot feign surprise at the fact that the majority of those employees are people of color. They are Hispanic, they are Asian, and they are black. Again, it is the system we have, but it is not a necessary part of nature. Our system is the one that doles out the best health care to the top of the income ladder, and the whole employer-based health care system keeps the unemployed from having reasonable access to health care at all. That's not nature. That is not human need. That is an economic system designed by the rich for the rich. And though the doctor's lounges at Mercy and Cox Hospitals, I can tell you from personal experience, have been full of Trump-supporting, aspiring millionaire physicians for the last several years, I suspect that things have fallen rather quiet lately. I bet that even I could walk into a physician's lounge today at Cox or Mercy and make the observation that physicians in England's national health care system work fewer hours, have a much better standard of living, and a much higher job satisfaction than American doctors do, and today, at least, I could walk out of the lounge without a scalpel in my back. How we react to an epidemic depends greatly on who is the most likely to die. Governor Kim Reynolds will send workers back into meatpacking plants, but members of Congress are still refusing to cram their more than 400 members into a room that is a lot smaller than it looks like it is on TV. In the 1980s, you remember how married and straight people reacted to the AIDS epidemic, which was perceived to be almost exclusively a gay liability. The news media for years blithely used the term innocent victim to reference someone who had been exposed to HIV through a blood transfusion or an accidental needle stick, as if gay people were somehow inherently not innocent because they had had sex. Sex is, of course, something that the rest of us have never done. Right? I mean, this, this is the church of perpetual virginity, isn't it? Or is there something you guys have forgotten to tell me? Compare that to how people reacted to things like tuberculosis or polio, which affects the rich and the poor, the young and the old equally. A pandemic can teach you a lot about who you really are. When we hear about an Ebola outbreak, we need to stop thinking of that as an African problem, just as we need to stop thinking of poverty as someone else's problem. We are all connected. We not only need to have universal health care, but we do need a universal basic income, a guarantee of meaningful employment, of a safe retirement, of housing, and of education. This pandemic brings us to the threshold of change, we just have to keep asking what kind of change we really believe in. I often think of the different versions of the future in fiction literature. Gene Roddenberry imagined the world of Star Trek in the mid-22nd century where there simply would be no currency, there's no money, because 
People pursue their careers based on their interests and talents, but everyone has more or less equal personal quarters. They share from the same recreational facilities, foods, and pastimes. But there's also the more dystopian types, like Mad Max, in which a society breaks down and everyone fights for whatever resources they can grab. I fear, however, that our system is much more like the Hunger Games, in which the poor are pitted into mortal competition with each other, and that that competition becomes the entertainment and security of the wealthy. And I submit that system, that Hunger Games system, that is the American economy, that has to stop. It can stop peacefully at the ballot box through electing a better government, or it can stop through revolution, but it has to stop. As Gandhi famously said, we have more than enough to meet the world's needs. We don't have enough to satisfy the world's greed. And I don't know about you, but I'm done trying to sacrifice enough to satisfy the greed of the 1%. We can provide safe housing, a healthy diet, meaningful work, a living wage, universal health care, and education to everyone. And because we can do it, we must do it. We have the resources to do it, and if that means we have to go from having 800 foreign military bases down to two or 300 I guess I'll get by somehow. I'm not equipped to hazard a guess how many lives will be lost this year in this pandemic. Many experts are now saying that we're only in the second inning and we have a lot yet to endure this fall and winter. But whether the number of casualties is 65,000 or 600,000, I'm just saying they shouldn't die in vain. We have seen our society's weaknesses and we know that we can fix them. And because we know we can fix them, there is no excuse short of damnation if we fail to do it. We've just heard clips today, starting with last week tonight, giving an overview of the post office. Jim Hightower explained why the post office is said to be losing money, though that's not really true. Democracy Now! spoke with the Postal Workers Union president. David Pakman explained why postal banking is a good idea and how it would make other banks better. Jim Hightower laid out the conservative argument for saving the post office. The Real News transitioned us into the workers' struggle with a review of the meaning of May Day. Counterspin spoke with Mike Elk about frontline worker rights and the rash of strikes rising up. Belabored discussed the danger to workers in the meatpacking industry. Unauthorized Disclosure spoke with Charles Derber about the upstairs-downstairs economy. The Topical from The Onion thanked Congress for keeping the people accountable. Counterspin spoke with Ricardo Salvador about our agricultural labor. 
Naomi Klein from The Intercept explained coronavirus economics and how to beat it. Social Distance discussed the underlying reasons conservative state governments are pushing people back to work before expert recommendations. And finally, we just heard a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray describing the need for a new economy in a post-COVID world. Members will be hearing a bit more of something. Likely, I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, it is hard to say. Since you've made it all the way to the end of the show, I'll just give you a little bit of background information. Uh, I'm feeling completely worn out. It's not just from regular workload. It honestly, it's mostly that the workload I had exceeded my expectations. So it's not that the the workload itself was unbearable, but because it exceeded my expectations, it completely threw off my schedule. For two solid weeks, I have been completely out of whack. And and so as if we're not all disoriented enough uh, with everything else, having my schedule thrown into complete disarray has added this sort of exhausting level of cognitive load on top of everything. So uh, I've intended to do a lot of things. I intended for this episode to come out last week, for instance. I've intended to have a a bonus episode available to members already this week that has not materialized. Uh, Now, I fully intend to take next week off for a vacation, help get my head straight and, and things back in order, I hope. Uh, and that is pretty much the only intention I have that I also have a, a good deal of confidence in actually coming to fruition. So uh, members do get bonus content. I'm just not making any promises about uh, what's it going to be and when will it actually appear. So to hear that, whenever it arrives, as well as all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line, though I haven't been able to get to you recently. Uh, If you would like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show at some point in the future, again, no promises, uh, send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you as often as I am able. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.